Hello and welcome to the latest episode of CFA UK's In Conversation podcast. This show is for investment professionals and focuses on topics that really matter to the profession today. My name is Gerhard Sobel, and I'm Head of Professional Learning at CFA UK. Joining me on this episode is Christoph Verghi, Deputy CEO of Toban, an asset manager based in France. In September last year, Toban launched their new strategy, Liberty, comprising three SFTR Article 9 compliant funds. The focus on the strategy is on social aspects of ESG investing, such as human rights, civil liberties, and the risk factors from authoritarian regimes. Christoph, welcome. Can you give us an overview of your journey and role at Toba? Sure. Hello, Gerhard. Uh, thank you for having me and thank you for the question. So my journey has been, uh, uh, I believe, uh, quite an interesting one. I joined Tobam 15 years ago at the time when Tobam became independent. So it was a fairly small asset management company comprised of eight people at the time and running uh, roughly 300 million. And the company was built around the idea of maximum diversification, which is not the topic of the day. Uh, but uh, we are, uh, so back 15 years ago, at the early stage of uh, what was called at the time smart beta or risk factor investing. And the, uh, the innovation of Tobam at the time was to set up an investment strategy uh, that was designed only with the purpose of maximizing the diversification level of the portfolio based on uh, a patented uh, way of measuring portfolio's diversification. So it's a simple but powerful idea. Uh, I joined the company 15 years ago based on uh, uh, that uh, simple and powerful idea. And my role uh, was and still is to uh, help develop the business, uh, get in touch with uh, investors, the type of investors we are dealing with are most of the time large, sophisticated investors. And these investors are for two thirds of our AUM based in North America, US, Canada, and one third in Europe with uh, some kind of bias towards, um, I would say, countries that are both open to innovation and systematic investing, which for us uh, really comprises the Nordics, Switzerland, uh, a little bit of UK uh, and France, if I summarize. Thank you. And can you take us through Toban's journey and focus on human rights? Sure. So um, I mentioned that uh, our original idea was around the concept of diversification. And uh, as the company started to grow, uh, we thought and we gathered and we defined uh, a field of philanthropy for Toban. So the first, uh, you know, the first contact we had, the first initiative regarding human rights was really led by uh, uh, our journey into philanthropy. And the idea was that uh, we wanted, we decided to define human rights uh, as our uh, philanthropic field, mainly based on the fact that um, human rights in our view is the first step of anything else you know you can decide on many other fields of philanthropy and they are all very respectable and you can find a good rationale for them uh, we looked at a few uh, education poverty and and you know a, a long list of uh, philanthropic ideas uh, were available our idea was to say really the first thing you need 
in order to enable anything in a society is human rights. And so we decided to engage into human rights philanthropy. And the way we did it uh, initially, so when is that initially? It's 2009. We started to sponsor uh, human rights NGOs. So the first one that we got in contact with was Amnesty International. And we uh, really uh, became a significant donator of Amnesty International. And the way we approached it at the time was uh, via a donation program linked with uh, the investments of Tobam in emerging markets. Uh, I think it's probably a simplification, but it's fair to say that uh, as soon as you invest in emerging markets, you invest, you, you approach an investment universe where uh, human rights uh, are uh, definitely higher on the agenda as an issue than in developed markets. And so because we started to invest in emerging markets, we decided in a way to try to offset our impact of investing in countries where human rights were not at the top by donating to Amnesty International. And so this was really the, the beginning of our uh, thinking. Uh, we then started to work with a very interesting uh, human rights organization back in 2015. And this organization is called Human Rights Watch. All of that remained in the field of philanthropy. And until we actually launched our liberty uh, strategies that we're gonna talk about in a few minutes, there was no uh, bridge between the philanthropic uh, work of Tobam and the investment, the way we were managing the funds. What actually happened is that along the way of working with these organizations, we kind of got uh, an expertise in the field. We would organize uh, several times a year, you know, presentation from them to us. They would come to Tobam, they would tell us uh, what they were doing on the ground, how they were working, why it was important. And we started to build uh, a sensitivity and a knowledge about what was going on, including in the research team. And roughly two years ago, we started to think, well, maybe it's time to try to do something with this knowledge that we got, with this conviction also that we got, and to do something on the investment side of our business. Uh, and, and here I have to draw a really important line. I think the first part of our human rights journey was really philanthropy. And philanthropy is about your values. And it is about almost, you can claim that you have some kind of moral dimension into philanthropy. You choose, you know, what matters to you. And uh, in a way, you don't have really to justify what you do. It's your choice because it's your own money. As soon as you go towards the investment management field, it's another story. And so the way we approached the subject uh, in the investment management field is really through our profession. And our profession is to manage money for our clients and to make money for our clients. So the dimension of human rights, the way we are integrating and looking at human rights, civil and democratic rights, in the asset management uh, uh, part of our business is really with a view that we do it because it works. We do it because we want to generate performance out of it. We don't do it because we believe it's good versus evil. It's not a moral approach that we want to put in place. We are working for our clients and our mission is to maximize the 
return per unit of risk uh, for our clients. And so this is really how we transformed what we are doing on the philanthropic side in what we are doing with Liberty in investment management. But the rationale is very different in the two, in the two different parts. Huh? And I cannot insist enough uh, on the fact that in Liberty strategies, which you mentioned are, uh, you know, Article 9, SFDR, uh, our goal is not to do the right thing. Our goal is to generate performance via our research findings. Thank you. So I understand what prompted that, that research. And what were the most surprising things you found linking fund performance to how authoritarian a regime is? So I think on a personal level, I had two uh, eureka moments. The first thing I should mention is that there has been evidence in the academia, in the literature, for quite some time, that there is a positive link between democracy and economic development. Okay, you can find plenty of articles of economists that are studying the, the, the link between uh, the transition of a country to democracy and the, develop, the economic development of this country. And there is a very clear link that whenever you are an autocratic country and you transition to becoming a democracy, your GDP per, uh, you know, per person is going to increase. And the other way around, if you are a democracy and you become an autocracy, this is systematically deteriorating your economic indicators. And by the way, there is also a very clear indication that GDP numbers in autocracy are in fact not really reflecting the reality of what happens in these in these economies. It's, it's a, there is a very uh, famous study done by uh, uh, both the World Bank and uh, an organization called Freedom House. And Freedom House is in the business of rating the level of democracy in countries. And they divided the world into three buckets. One bucket is free, almost free, and not free. And if you compare the official GDP number uh, to the reality on the ground. How do they measure the reality on the ground? They look at satellite images and they look at the growth rate of the light you can observe at night, which is a very good proxy for the economic growth of a country. And you see almost a perfect match between the two numbers, actual growth, official growth in the bucket of free countries and as soon as you go to almost free countries, you start to see a discrepancy. And when you look at non-free countries, you see a very large discrepancy, which is always in the same direction. Official GDP numbers are higher than what you can observe via satellite images. So we know that there is a link between official GDP numbers and the uh, political regime. And on the top of that, we also know that economic growth is overstated in autocratic regimes. So it's really the, 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 double, uh, the double layer, if you wish. But we are not economists at Toba. We are portfolio managers. And so what we try to do is to actually establish a link between the performance of a stock portfolio and the exposure to the political regime, and in particular, to the autocratic regimes. And this is very interesting. And the way we proceeded is really a little bit similar to the way we proceeded with, uh, you know, the maximum diversification approach. Because we are systematic guys, we looked at how to efficiently measure the exposure of a stock to autocratic regimes. And I think there is a very intuitive first way to look at it, 
is to consider the direct exposure of a portfolio. Obviously, if you own Russian stocks, this Russian stock is going to be exposed to what happens in Russia. But I think where the originality of Tobam uh, is really uh, uh, innovative and bringing something new to the table here, it is the fact that we are also measuring what we call the indirect exposure. And the indirect exposure can be also very intuitive. Uh, it's the fact that if you bought SOCGEN stock, there is some Russian stock, Russian exposure in SOCGEN because SOCGEN had to write off a three and a half billion of assets uh, uh, on their balance sheet, which was the Russian bank that were owning and they sold for one uh, ruble or one euro. Uh, when uh, when Russia actually invaded Ukraine. So we are taking into account both the direct and the indirect exposure. But in order to be able to actually take that into account or define a perimeter, we first need to work on the country level and to define what is a democracy and what is an autocracy. Okay, And this is where I think uh, it becomes really interesting because there is plenty of data available on the subject. If you look at, uh, you know, I told you about human rights organization, there are uh, several organizations that are in the business of promoting democracy and rating the level of democracy in the world. Uh, I can name a few. Uh, the one that's probably the most well-known in the US is called Freedom House. It's the one that led the study with the World Bank I was mentioning about. The one that is very well known in Northern Europe is called VDEM. It's an organization that's based, uh, hosted by the University of Gothenburg. And I really invite uh, you and the people who are listening to us to go to this website, Freedom House VDEM. So it's V-D-E-M. Because if you go to these websites, it's absolutely fascinating. You are going to find plenty of data. You are going to be able to compare the level of academic freedom in the UK, in uh, 63 and compare it to uh, Canada, France, or Italy, because there is a very long uh, history of ratings of a very large number of criteria that you can use to define uh, what democracy is. And these criteria, you know, in, in, in at least in French, when you pronounce the word democracy, you think electoral process, uh, you think elections, participations, opposition, etc. In fact, democracy is not only about election. It's about the rule of law. It's about the freedom of expression. It's about a lot of things and a lot of dimensions. And the good news is you can find plenty of ratings regarding all these dimensions. And when you consolidate these ratings, you are able to come up with country rating. And this is the first step of what we do at Tobam. We consolidated the data from uh, VDEM, Freedom House, The Economist Intelligence Units, and other organization, and we come up with a rating country by country. And of course, we especially look at the rating of countries where you have listed stocks that belongs to the MSCI ACWI. As soon as you have stocks that belong, I don't know, you know, Chinese stocks, uh, uh, Egyptian stock, uh, etc. And, and so we do have a country rating for all the 50 or so countries that host stocks that are listed or that belongs to uh, the MSCI Acqui Investment Universe. And one surprise I personally got, and which I think is very powerful, is that in the data we collect, there is a very high level of homogeneity in the ratings. You know how much in the ESG world, sometimes 
people face very different ratings. And uh, my preferred example is Tesla. If you look at Tesla from, let's say, a climate perspective, you're going to find that it's a wonderful stock. If you look at Tesla from a governance perspective, you're going to find that it's a very bad stock, the way the governance is, is established at Tesla. So very often, you have ratings that go in opposite directions. And you also have biases uh, in ESG rating. We all know that large cap tend to have higher ratings because they have resources to allocate to the topic and small cap tend to have lower ratings on average. We know that there is a country bias in ESG rating that US organizations tend to rate higher US stocks and the same goes for European organizations. And so, you know, you can, um, you can in a way, statistically, very often, there is no clear signal in terms of the, the meaningfulness of the information you are getting when you look at ESG ratings. It's completely different in terms of democratic ratings. And that's very interesting. Uh, I mean, there is very little divergence between what Freedom House, The Economist, and VDEM are going to tell you about whether China is a democracy or not. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm taking an extreme example. But even the borderline countries are really very homogeneously rated by all the organization. So that's my first, you know, uh, uh, surprise in a way. It's the fact that in the field of human rights, the, the quality of the information you are looking at is very good. The second surprise is uh, the fact that, you know, we mentioned about two types of exposure, the direct and the indirect exposure. If you look at any pretty standard portfolio, what is amazing is that the impact of the indirect exposure is much more important than the impact of the direct exposure. And if you go to any large asset owner today and you ask them, you know, uh, what's your exposure to Russia? Very often the question, the answer is going to be, well, it's zero because I don't own Russian stocks. I believe it's a wrong answer. <laughs> if you really want to measure uh, your exposure to Russia, you should look at the indirect exposure. What is the exposure to Russia of the stocks you own and the stocks that are listed outside of Russia? And you, you, you're going to realize that uh, there is a lot of exposure. And in fact, it's funny because it's a concept that's very well developed. You know, if you ask a, a portfolio manager, what's your exposure to oil? Very, I mean, very intuitively, the manager is going to compute a beta, a correlation, some type of uh, computation that's going to take into account the indirect exposure. But on the country level, very few people are doing it. And so the innovation of what Tobam is bringing to the table is the fact that we combine this direct and indirect exposure. And I believe also the results. And what is the result? The result is that the exposure to autocracy, autocracy or the autocratic risk is not rewarded over time. And that's really the basis for what we do. And that's very striking. If you look at numbers, and if you look at, you know, either short-term numbers or long-term numbers, you actually find the same results. It's costly for your portfolio to be exposed to autocratic regimes, whether directly or indirectly. And this is um, the way, the, the most intuitive way I have to illustrate that is China. And, you know, if, if you look at, the share of China in the uh, economic world over the past 15 years 
it roughly doubled. It went from, I would say, 9% to 18%. So China roughly today is 18% of the world GDP. 15 years ago, it was 9%. So it's huge. Uh, the, the economic development of China has been huge. And I remember 20 years ago, when I started myself in asset management, CIOs were telling investors, allocate to BRICS, because this is where growth is going to come from. And they were right. A lot of growth was generated in BRICS. But the problem is, performance didn't follow. If you look at the performance of the MSCI emerging markets with or without China over the past 15 years, if you excluded China, you have a better performance than if you included China. And yet, you know, the, uh, the size of China really increased, but it was not bringing performance to your portfolio. And that's market cap weighted performance. And so for me, it's an illustration of the fact that uh, if you want to be able to harvest performance, you need civil and democratic rights to enable you to do that. Because if you don't have the level of rights, you know, growth can happen, but you are not going to be rewarded for it. And that's, you have plenty of examples of that. But I think China is very striking. Uh, and when I say China, of course, it's not a, a, a judgment of value of China. It's related to the political regime of China. Thank you. That, that's extremely enlightening. Finally, looking back at your own career, what one piece of advice would you pass on to junior professionals in our industry? Well, that's, it's uh, probably the, the most difficult question you asked me today. Uh, I think I'm not sure I have, you know, the uh, universal answer to that. I, I, the, the conviction I built over the past 20 years is that what's interesting is to be different. I'm fascinated by how many people in our industry are simply replicating uh, what has been done in the past and not looking for new answers, uh, are simply uh, implementing what have been, what other people have been implementing in the past. I think it's very um, interesting. It's also uh, empowering and, and making your uh, professional life interesting to try to look at things with a new eye, with a new angle. And that's really what happened to me. You know, before Tobam, I worked in large asset management companies. It was interesting. I learned a lot of things. But when I compare my life at Tobam and my life in these other organizations, I think there is a notion of passion and of a notion of, I know why uh, I'm doing my work because we have something different. We have something different. Uh, new and, and we are actually also learning a lot of things uh, on the way. Uh, when we launched Maximum Diversification, we thought we had a, 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 a powerful concept. And over the 15 years, we find many, many conclusions that we didn't know when we actually uh, initially launched. And so for me, that's what brings interest also to the professional life and success. Uh, because at the end of the day, you also want to be successful. and at least one way to be successful is to be different. And if you if you are simply trying to replicate what other people are doing, I think you might be successful, <laughs> but it's going to be maybe a little bit more difficult and a little bit less uh, interesting as well. Thank you. That, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, thank you so much for some really valuable insight here for all of us to take away. And thank you for everyone listening. Remember to look out for the next episode 
of our In Conversation podcast through the usual CFA UK email and social media channels. You can also subscribe so that you don't miss an episode through CFA UK SoundCloud channel or Apple Podcasts. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. Thank you.